You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Curator's Corner. If this is your first time joining us for any of our programs, a special welcome to you. If indeed this is the first time you've done anything with the Spy Museum, check out our website for all the great adult programming and even youth programming that we're doing throughout this end of the summer and into the fall. A lot of great things to keep your so occupied uh, during this pandemic. We are in a pretty extraordinary situation this year, regardless of all the crazy that's happened otherwise, because we are marking the 75th anniversary of a pretty momentous moment, really, the end of World War II. We've had a lot of really key dates throughout this year, going from May and VE Day to all the different nuclear stuff from Trinity to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Soon we'll be celebrating the formal end of World War II in the beginning of September. But another thing that is celebrating its 75th anniversary is the State Department Intelligence Branch, the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, which a lot of you perhaps may not have heard a lot about. Perhaps you don't know of them at all, but they are, as you can tell, older than CIA, older than NSA, DIA, actually the vast majority of intelligence agencies as part of the IC. INR is one of the first. Uh, so why don't we hear about them a lot? There's not a lot of movies about INR agents running around the world, uh, you know, saving the day. They don't tend to crow a lot, but today we're gonna give them the opportunity to brag a little bit about themselves because they deserve it after 75 years. So we're joined by an extraordinary panel, including the boss herself. We have the Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, Ellen McCarthy, who's joining us. We also have the Director of the Office of Cyber Affairs, Benjamin Brake, who's, I have to say, all his buddies call him Benjamin. We had to make sure we've got that in there. We have the Science and Global Health Advisor to INR, Dr. Adrian Keene. And finally, the Director of the Office of Opinion and Research at INR, Regina Ferranda. So thank you all for joining us. This is going to be a really interesting panel. Uh, 
we really haven't had the opportunity to reach out and talk to you guys very much. And so I think we have the best four we could possibly ask for certainly here. So Assistant Secretary McCarthy, let me start with you because, uh, you know, like I said, you don't necessarily hear a lot about INR. I think that's on purpose. You know, you kind of keep your head down and keep quiet and do your job. But for the audience out there who may not be as familiar with INR as, as some of us are, can you talk a little bit about your place within the IC? What does INR provide to the broader intelligence community and American national security writ large? Like, where do you, What is your claim to fame in INR? So first of all, call me Ellen. Although every time I hear Assistant Secretary, I get the, I, it gives me the shakes because I would never have thought, I started in the intelligence community in the mid eighties. And if somebody had told me then that someday you would get to come and work in INR, I would have said you're crazy. Um, because INR just has had, for those of us who've worked in the IC, INR is very well known, actually. You know, it has a, a long reputation for excellence and being the really smart kids and, um, you know, being the ones who uh, had deep knowledge, deep expertise, you know, would spend years in an area or a function. And so, you know, when given the chance to come and work with these folks, it was, you, you don't say no to those sorts of opportunities. Um, but I'll tell you, I really was surprised at all that INR does, even I who've been around for a while. And by the way, you should always know that the second you think you know, you are hosed. I mean, seriously, it, it, I had no idea all the things that INR, INR does. Um, we are the State Department's intelligence agency. Um, we're not only are we one of 40 bureaus within state, but we're also one of 16 intelligence agencies. So we operate and we report to the Director of National Intelligence, just like CIA and DIA and all the agencies that I'm sure many of your bureaus, bureaus are very familiar with. But what sets us apart from all of those intelligence agencies is we're the only one that supports the Secretary of State and his team, both inside Main State and spread around the world that are at the posts. We are the only ones whose whole reason for existence is to inform policymaking and to ensure that not only are we leveraging the work that all the other agencies are doing, but we are, we are executing our own expertise that comes from operating day to day with policymakers, being completely integrated with their operations, developing those relationships. Um, our, you know, we have 20% of our staff is foreign service, so we truly understand the needs of the policymaker, and we have a level of expertise that you won't find anywhere else across the IC. So that in a nutshell is who INR is, and we are super cool. And when I get out of this job, I plan on producing a movie, and some of these folks <laughs> on the screen will be in that movie. Not, not sure there'll be a lot of parachuting in that movie or anything, but it'll be, I'll watch it. I'll definitely watch it. So the most probably person that's been very busy, I would think, over the last six or seven months is Adrian, as the you know, global health science advisor, um, you've probably had your hands full uh, with, you know, there is a global, in case you haven't been paying attention, uh, there's a global <laughs> pandemic. And, you know, you, you the State Department, uh, more than anyone else, is has its hands tied to global cooperation and internationalism. So I, I'm wondering how much, in two cents, how much you've had to, um, how much your job has gotten busier, certainly over the, over the last six months, but also the opportunities that have opened up for cooperation in, in, in with other countries that maybe we wouldn't have dealt with before over this idea of how can we come together uh, and do something about the COVID-19 outbreak? 
Well, thanks for that question. And um, I'm really excited to be here and talk about talk about the science um, because I'm a scientist by training. So that subject is near and dear to my heart. So yes, I've been I've been very, very busy over the last six months. Um, you know, it feels like at least a decade ago when um, it was actually December 31st when I first learned of the outbreak, when the world learned of the outbreak um, through a few infectious disease uh, monitoring listservs and things. So I've been really busy since that time. Um, you know, it's been really a ton of work, but it's also been pretty gratifying as a scientist to see um, all of the international science output during this crisis. And it's been so important to our work. Um, International, I mean, science advances in general, but of course, during this crisis, have been so important to understanding the, you know, the foreign policy implications and national security implications of, of these sorts of um, crises. So, so that's been, um, um, yeah, really, really important to our work. And um, the thing is, uh, yeah, the thing is, there is, you know, there, there has been such a volume that you've got to kind of filter through the science too, right? So we, um, you know, I spend a lot of my time trying to evaluate what type of science is actually helpful and what kind of science we're going to put in front of our, our senior policymakers. And then, of course, we combine that with the intelligence reporting and diplomatic reporting from our, you know, our diplomats out overseas to, to provide the fullest picture we can for our senior policymakers. So, so yes, we've, we've done a lot of that. Um, but we also have relationships. I mean, the great thing about INR is because we're, you know, part of the State Department and we don't do any intelligence collection. So, you know, we're all overt analysts. We're able to reach out and maintain relationships with scientists um, all over the world and, and in the U.S. and, and get their thoughts on, on crises like this. So we, we ask for their input directly. Um, we go to conferences and things like that, and then also have some more formal relationships, even like asking them to do research projects for us, bringing them in for analytic outreach events where we can ask them kind of behind closed doors, so with policymakers, with us in the intelligence community, ask them questions about their science and, and their views on scientific issues. So, so we've done that multiple times, times throughout this um, crisis. And then as far as the international cooperation side, I really don't have a whole lot to say on that. So we are, um, as Ellen said in, in INR, um, we are supporting the policymakers. So we're providing them the analysis and information. And so I'll kind of leave that, I would leave that to my um, broader State Department colleagues for that question, yeah. Great. Well, Ben, let me ask you a similar question because the the it's not a new issue like the pandemic is, but because cyber affects everyone on earth, anyone who's connected at all to the internet and countries, perhaps that wouldn't normally get along well together are dealing with some of the similar threats, particularly from non-state actors and, you know, terrorist organizations and others. Has there been, have there been new diplomatic opportunities that have opened up because of the spread of the dangers of cyber around the world, particularly from, I think, you know, when ISIS was at its height, you saw them attacking everyone, you know, using cyber capabilities that we just not assume existed. You know, yes, this is a problem, but could it also be seen as a diplomatic opportunity? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, uh, you know, cyber cyber threats aren't aren't new, um, but the the issues have definitely uh, presented more and more opportunities over the past decade to you know to to, to branch out into new areas of, of diplomacy. You know, it's an area of diplomacy uh, on its own really now, uh, and you know, it's it's for engagement uh, with existing close allies and partners. But as you said, on occasion even. Um, with adversaries is either directly 
or in uh, there are other broader fora uh, in which our diplomats are going out and, and having these exchanges, uh, either at the UN or regional security organizations, more and more these conversations are happening there, trying to help build a, a global consensus around what, what we mean by responsible state behavior in cyberspace, because really it affects all of us. And uh, you know our, our, our office, which is just about to become a teenager, we're, we're, we're relatively new when, when you measure us up against the history of, of 75 years of INR, but we're, we work uh, regularly with our policy colleagues on some of these diplomatic channels to engage allies and partners and call out the cyber activities of, of Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. Uh, you know, more and more opportunities to do that, obviously. Um, you know, just a few minutes ago, NSA and FBI uh, released a 40-page overview of a pre previously undisclosed uh, malware used by GRU actors. And that's, you know, one of these, another opportunity where the IC can help support diplomatic engagements about a shared concern. Um, and so, yeah, the, the ubiquity, as you said, the ubiquity of cyber threats is opening up new uh, diplomatic opportunities. Um, but it's also, there's a variety of cyber issues that we can engage on. It's not just nation state cybersecurity threats. It's also combating cyber crime. It's non-state actors, as you said. It's pre protecting human rights online. It's ensuring a multi-stakeholder community remains the foundation of internet governance. It's a host of issues. You know, it's, 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 it's broad and it's deep. Uh, so we, we have lots of, lots of work to do. So Gina, for the for the hard power folks out there, they might kind of look at what you do and be like, what? You know, what's going on? But your you know fiefdom within INR is one of not the most, one of the most important because understanding kind of what the world is thinking is a key component. And, I, and I'm not going to answer the question. I'm going to ask the question for you. But I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward. It, what, are, what are the benefits of doing opinion research around the world? I mean, and, and the the kind of quasi follow up to that is. Could this be considered at least an unofficial collection effort? You know, because you are going out and you are actually bringing in data for the IC and data for national security. Well, okay, so let me. <laughs> so first of all, I don't call it a fiefdom; I call it an empire. Yes. <laughs> People call it the emperor of polling. I want to be called the uh, pollster of the United States, which the acronym is POTUS. So <laughs> taken. Yes. Um, so Ellen, I think we should probably work on that. Um, got so it. to answer this, got it? Okay. To answer the second part of the question, it's, it's not, it's not collection, it's polling, it's open source research. Um, we've been doing this polling for 75 years since the end of World War II. Most of that time was actually outside of the intelligence community. So we were first part of the Office of Military Government, which was OMG US in Western Germany. And then we were part of the US Information Agency for 50 years. So we were always doing this polling during that time. It wasn't part of the IC, it wasn't collection, it's just, it's just polling, which we think is pretty interesting. Anyway, um, so to answer the broader question, the main national security advantage is really the uniqueness of this information. There are few governments around the world that have the benefit of understanding public opinion to the extent that we do, tailored in the way to, to their policymakers like we do. So like in any other situation, having unique information gives you this strategic advantage. So some concrete examples, Vince, you talked about um, 
you talked about influence efforts. Well, this is actually one of the areas where my, Adrian's, Ben's offices really intersect. So on COVID, for instance, we this is as much this is as much a um, an effort to shape discourse and narratives and control information or to share information as anything else. So my office can go and see what people understand about COVID, see what narratives they're they're kind of glomming onto. That has a real that has a real impact, a real benefit to epidemiology and public health. There is a huge dose of cyber in that because, as Ben mentioned, you know, actors, state actors, other actors are trying to essentially shape narratives and information around COVID. So that's the kind of thing we can understand, only really understand with empirical research. Um, one other thing, we, we essentially do really good anticipatory intelligence. So with this kind of data, we can say, we think this population is right for protests. We can say, this is how this population is probably gonna vote. And we are really good at making those predictions. And so that, that is, those are two really big benefits. You know, Vince, if I can jump in, um, because I'll tell you that uh, Regina's, Regina's heard me say this before. You know, I think I'm so glad that the State Department actually had the foresight to move OPN into the intelligence um, community um, because it's becoming more and more valuable a tool as the world gets more and more complex, as Gina has just highlighted. And I've actually called it pulled in because it is a source of information that our all source analysts absolutely rely on. But I'll tell you, it's also standalone. So if you are in the Bureau of Western Hemispheres and you want to understand um, how is sanctions working and name the country, you know, there's no better way to do it. There's no more accurate, true way to do it than to get Gina's team on the ground collecting that data and providing those insights. And as I said, in a world that's getting more complex where it's nothing is black and white, our friends are not our friends and our enemies are not our enemies, you know, having some capability that provides some true insights that can help you sort of, you know, sift the wheat from the chaff, you know, that's OPN. They're an incredibly valuable capability and they're a very unique tool that INR has. Another thing that sets us apart from the other intelligence agencies. Well, Ellen, let me follow up on that because uh... It's a somewhat exaggeration, but basically the people on the screen is about half of the population of INR. <laughs> you, 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 you got put in charge of an organization that is dramatically smaller than many of the other ICs. You, you, you have a small team and you have to do way more with way less. Talk a little bit about that dynamic. Is obviously there's a benefit to having like, you know, 300 kick butt studs at your disposal. But the work, especially in a time like this, where you're dealing with a pandemic and there's cyber overtones and there's a lot of information coming in, it's got to be tough to have such a small group working for you. Well, so first, let me talk about the let me start with the benefits of being small. I mean, I've worked at agencies of 15,000 or more. And I think one of the biggest, biggest benefits of being small is that we're incredibly agile. So the reality is, is that we can pivot to a, prior, to a new priority very quickly. And because we're small, we're also very integrated. Um, you know, these three people run three different offices, but they talk and they communicate pretty much daily. And so before, long before, you know, the rest of the community was moving to a mission management model, whereas we would integrate different skill sets. INR has been doing this for its whole 75 years. So, I mean, that's part of our strength. That we work very closely together. 
um, our people are, uh, they tend to stay, they don't tend to leave, on, and, and there's a reason why. I mean, having worked defense and law enforcement, let me tell you that working intelligence in support of diplomacy is about as cool as it gets. Um, because you're, you have a relationship with your client, so you're getting immediate feedback about how that information is actually affecting a policy or how it's not affecting a policy. So there's great, you know, that that self-actualization comes from having that sort of relationship, getting that feedback, knowing you're making a difference. Um, and so as a result, because they stay, they get really good at what, they, what, what they're studying. And it can be anything from um, an operational capability to being an analyst in um, a, a China analyst. So, you know, you, you become pretty good. We speak multiple languages. Most of our people have multiple advanced degrees and they have deep relationships with their clients. So they really, they become friends, they know them, they know the foreign service. And so that's why we can do so much with, with few, so few people. But the other side of that is not only are we very integrated with the State Department, we're incredibly integrated with the intelligence community. Because we understand the needs of the policymaker, we, and we have people whose entire job it is to ensure that the rest of the intelligence community, those agencies that do collections, are satisfying the needs of the policymaker. They're satisfying the needs of the Secretary of State. And so because we have those relationships and that expertise. We're very, we are very successful at being to lever, leverage the much larger agencies, especially the collection agencies, to make sure that they know that we're here. Um, you know, we're small, but we're mighty. And, and you ask anybody in the, in the intelligence community, they're gonna tell you that. Okay, so there's the plus side, but here's my public service announcement, the negative side. Yes, the world is getting far more complex. You know, we, we are very proud of our 75-year history. You know, we're the only operational component of the Office of Strategic Services. In 1945, when it was dissolved, there was one capability that remained. That was the research and analysis branch. And, and President Truman decided to move it to the State Department. So and he even wrote in that letter that this is now the first of what will become an enduring intelligence capability in a government entity. When we came over, we were thousands of historians and artists and, um, and uh, anthropologists and scientists. And here we are today, not nearly thousands of people in a world that's arguably more complex. And there's a whole host of reasons that, that we've gotten here, um, none of which, I'm not blaming the State Department, they're my department, I am incredibly loyal to the, to the state. But it's, 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 it's now we have to be able to identify our requirements and make sure that we really are meeting the president's national security priorities and that we're resourced to do it. And so, you know, I've got a big mouth. I'm willing to, I'm willing to communicate what INR is and who we're doing. I appreciate this opportunity to showcase what we're doing because, and, and by the way, I have the secretary's support on this regard as we really talk about maybe investing in some areas where we need to grow areas like emerging technologies. So Ben is our director of cyber and I would, and we're very much in the process of giving him another office to lead. And that's an office that looks at emerging tech. You know, what is a world gonna look like where um, artificial intelligence and smart cities are, are, are the norm and not the exception? What is the world gonna look like when communications are gonna be very difficult to, to get access to because they're encrypted or we work in a quantum world? What does that look like? How how what does our policymaker need to understand? How do we operate? And, and, and so INR is about being in front of everybody, the policymaker, so we can warn them on what's coming down. And so we can, can help them understand what's coming up across the horizon. And so I'm very much focused during my time at INR at not making us ginormous. It's about 
It's about maybe bringing in just a couple more folks who can help us with emerging technologies and sanctions support and mm -hmm. China and, and OPN, which I think is getting, you know, we, we have more requirements for, for OPN. We need more scientists. So Adrian is an epidemiologist, but you know, the impact of changes in the environment are real. We need people that understand the climate. We, so so I, I know I'll stop talking now, but my point is we're small, that's agile, that's a strength, but you know, we also, we need to grow a little bit. And, and, and so we need to talk a little bit more about who we are and what our impact is. So, so that our needs are, are, are responded to. Well, Adrian, let me, let me pick up on that because Ellen talked about a merging technology department, but let's talk about emerging science because I think that's something that um, is near and dear to my heart. So I wanna hear you talk about it. I, there used to be, and there still kind of is, but a, a lot of effort put into scientific attaches in American embassies overseas. There was a program started in the 50s and it got very big in the 60s and then kind of petered out a little bit. I, I, science, because it, because it is universal, because it, there's no such thing as American science and Russian science and Chinese science, you know, it's it's natural. It's it's going to happen if it's, it can be discovered. It can it's discovered by anybody. How active are you and the broader INR and the broader State Department in in paying attention to scientific advances worldwide to, to see perhaps what could be a benefit to the United States, but also but perhaps could be problematic moving into the future to to our national security? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that that's really, um, that question you just asked, um, you know, how, how in tune are you with the scientific advancements overseas or, or worldwide? I mean, I would say that's actually the bedrock of my analysis as a health and science analyst in INR. Um, you know, to me, that really comes first in, in, and even before, you know, integrating the intelligence reporting, the diplomatic reporting. So that's a key, key part of the job. And it's, but I, as I kind of mentioned before in my earlier answer, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a serious lift and, and we are a small bureau. So we try to find ways um, to do more with less, right? So we do have partners in the IC that, that do a better job in some ways of, of more comprehensive analysis. But we absolutely do this. It's a, it's a, it really is a huge, huge piece of my work. And so, like I said, personally, I, you know, I have a few strategies, like, you know, keeping relationships with scientists from my prior work, um, and also making new relationships um, and taking advantage of all the programs we have, including analytic outreach, where we're able to bring outside experts in to share their views with with us and the policymakers. So, so yeah, it's a huge piece of the work. Um, there, there's more than I can do. And as Ellen says, <laughs> we and I are hoping we'll have some more scientists and emerging tech experts soon um, because um, this is, I mean, this is clearly the future, right? So it's super important. One of the strategies in the past was to make relationships with our scientists, you know, because of before COVID, because of how much international travel was done and how much coordination was done between American scientists and those overseas. Is that still a practice that you do as, to kind of get, get a gauge on what's happening around the world? So you're saying engaging with American scientists in order to keep right. that finger on the pulse of what's happening. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, of course, even though INR, I mean, we are all overt analysts and, and, you know, we don't do any collection and all that kind of thing. I mean, of course, like when it comes to some of the types of interactions and relationships, it's a bit easier to to have those. I mean, also just geographically speaking, it's a little bit easier to have the relationships with American scientists, but we're, but we're not restricted in that sense. You know, I go right. to international conferences on epidemiology and public health, and I talk all the time um, to international scientists. I actually did my PhD in the UK, so I've got quite, you know, a few connections still there, really helpful. I mean, a lot of the European scientists are doing such great work, both in COVID and, and 
the suite of all, all other issues. But yeah, I think it's always easier for us um, to take advantage of the American scientists who are, are closer to us, also the US government, right? They have, we have such a, um, such a rich resource in the various technical, scientific and technical agencies in the US government. Um, so, so they're really helpful for right. this too. Vince, so, if I could, yeah, yeah of course. Just thought from our, our perspective, uh, as the emerging technology issue has been invoked a few times, you know, I, I think we're already, INR's already in great footing, you know, with emerging technologies, you know, strategic intent is still going to be a key component of that. And that's, that's really been our bread and butter for a long time is, is you know, uh, when it comes to, but when it comes to the question of how quickly can a, a, a country move from basic science to applied R&D to achieving operational or strategic advantage, that's where an uh, understanding of the basic science is going to be really important. And that's that's what Adrian and Eleanor already mentioned that we're, we're building out. And so there's lots of science fellowships that we, we're relying on to bring in uh, folks who are already at the sort of the postdoc or even tenured faculty level, uh, bringing them in for uh, for a time uh, to help inform that, to join that analysis up that, that INR has been historically so good at. Um, that's merging that strategic intent with, with sort of emerging understanding of, of new fields. And, and, and that's important to state, our State Department mission too, because as you said earlier, State Department is everywhere. We operate everywhere. And our, our, our national security mission is really broad. It's, it's, it's not just the, the, the hard security questions, but it's public health, it's uh, social and political stability, uh, and things like that. And so that's, that's, that's where we're going. And, and we have so many, so many uh, sort of pools of knowledge that we can draw from because of how unique INR is. Uh, Ellen and Adrian already mentioned a few and, and Gina's office obviously is another one. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Well, Gina, let me let me kick this to you because we talk about complexity, and I and I think that um, I, I believe I kept a pretty good poker face when you brought up polling for voting in, in elections, but others may have been chuckling because of you know our history in the United States not too great at doing that at least lately. Um, but we actually have a bit of an advantage here in that there's a pretty binary system in the United States. You got conservatives, Republicans, you know, liberals, Democrats. There's not 57 parties that are involved in elections moving forward, whereas you have insane complexity around the world with diversity of opinions that go far beyond what we see here in the U.S. I, I mean, I think of you know somewhere like Afghanistan, where we've certainly been heavily involved in the last well now 20 years or so, with seemingly endless numbers of tribal groups and that see the world in different ways, or even thinking about countries in Europe, our friends in Europe who have true socialist parties and true, you know, far right and true far left. How, what is the difficulty in the dissemination side of your job to make policymakers understand that it's not just, you know, Republican, Democrat, that there are diversity of opinion that go far beyond what they're used to here? Yeah, so I might... I might dissent a little bit on the, in, in true fashion, 
on the um, on the idea that U.S. opinion is binary, maybe U.S. political opinion, maybe. Although I would say that there are a lot of tribes within the United States as well, in every country, in every population. In my office, we call them subgroups of a population. Right? So, um, so for instance, in the United States, you have yeah, absolutely, you have political parties, then you have urban rural. And you have race and you have class and sometimes these things oversect and then they branch off and that's really interesting when they do that's what social scientists really love to look at and frankly that's what political parties and marketers and businesses and ngos spend a huge amount of time in the united states um, researching giving a lot of, of resources to micro targeting infinitely smaller groups so my point here is that it's the same everywhere. And what social scientists like the ones in my office really like to do is understand what you said, understand that complexity. So let's take Afghanistan, for instance. So Afghans think of themselves first and foremost as, as Afghans. Not to say that tribes are not the primary way through the, the primary lens through which they see the world. Certainly not to say that tribes are not essentially how they live their lives. But what's important and what's kind of the case across the board for us is that we're interested, yeah, in those top lines. We're interested, and like anybody in the United States, interested in how you know, the big picture, the nationwide um, opinion is. But what's really interesting to us is getting to those subgroups, looking at those divides, looking at why one group says one thing, another group says another thing, and why that matters to US policy. And to go back to the question that you asked, <laughs> it's complex. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it's hard to do. Um, we use a lot of statistical and analytic techniques, a lot of structured analytic techniques to, to get to that. And then we have to turn that into these narratives that are really accessible, really relatable for policymakers. So yeah, that, that's hard. Yeah, I, I find it so difficult. I mean, I've asked this question now over the last six plus years, and I find it difficult to ask without sounding like I'm insulting policymakers. But I mean, the idea is that members of Congress and, and presidents and others usually don't have a statistical background. They don't necessarily, like Adrian, they don't have a scientific background. They're not necessarily experts on cyber. They're not experts on Afghanistan. They're not experts on a lot of things. And so when it comes to, and maybe this is also a question for Ellen as kind of the the clearinghouse and the conduit for this information, you know, you're bringing in, in your case, Gina, you're bringing in thousands and thousands and thousands of individual points of data about opinion around the world. And then you have to find a way to tell Congressperson X or, you know, Secretary of State Pompeo or someone who might be a lawyer by training or might be a, you know, member of Congress, that, that, why this information matters. And, and to me, INR actually has one of the harder jobs because you're not necessarily doing the traditional stuff that, you know, CIA says Russia's got a new tank or DIA says Russia's got a new tank. It's hard to kill. This is why we should be worried about it. Or the Chinese economy is looking great in 10 years. You know, thank you, Treasury Department. When we talk about polling, you're talking about relationships between countries. You're talking about science and international pandemics. These might not be things that are known all that well or understood all that well. So the dissemination that probably sounds like it's meant to be more difficult than for others. If I, you know, Gina, if I can jump on this, because I'll tell you that um, I think that's a that's a great question, especially now, given sort of the environment we're, op we're operating in. Um, 
but the reality is, is that, yes, yeah, support, I mentioned this earlier, intelligence support to policy is very different than intelligence support to defense or law enforcement. Mm -hmm. You know, who's behind the door? What kind of a tank that is that? You know, what, you know, what satellite is what? Um, this is much different. And so, and, and so policymakers, they use a lot of different data to establish a policy. And intelligence is but one, what is one stream of data of many that the secretary or the congressman or the assistant secretary is going to use when they establish a policy. Um, and so there's lots of times where, you know, intelligence is going here, not very well. Um, the intelligence is over here and policy is over here. So, you know, so it, so it is hard to be the, 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 the intel analyst at state who's got to go to the policymaker and says, this is where you are, but this is what I'm seeing. And so you really have to see, you really have to understand about how can I deliver that information in a way that is useful um, and, and, and it's going to, and it's going to be informative. How do I, how do I inform that policy? And there's a bit of an art to that. And there are lots of different ways that it happens. Um, you know, probably the best way is because of these relationships that we have, you know, we're very close relationships. We meet with them every day. We sit down and talk or sharing emails or sharing. So that's one way to do it. It may be a product and maybe in the president's daily briefing. So, you know, we are the number one producer of the president's daily brief per capita of all of our other two all source intelligence agencies. And that's because we truly understand what the policymaker wants and cares about. So we have a whole pantheon of ways that we can disseminate this information. And it is tough because lots of times it's not what they want to hear. I, I laugh because 75 years ago, um, when we were coming to state, I've heard that State Department didn't want the research and analysis branch because they said things that the that the policymakers didn't always want to hear. Um, I think that's you know we're very proud of that tradition on some level because that is providing a service, providing truth to power. We we come up with ways to share it. We also understand that it's not always going to be considered. That there's other sources of data that's going to be considered, and we keep going. I'm confident that we provide value because I will tell you that we are asked for all the time and nobody ever says no to an INR analyst walking in the door and saying this is what we think. Um, our secretary is an avid consumer of intelligence. He asks thousands of questions all, all day long. The deputy secretary of state, we meet with him two or three times a day, avid consumer of intelligence. The bureaus, the, the undersecretaries and the assistant secretaries in the posts. Um, are always asking for more. So for me, I know we're providing value because more times than not, intelligence actually is affecting policy. Right. And it's our intelligence that's affecting that policy. Yeah, you're welcome, Ellen, to answer this or not answer it because it is a little bit about inside baseball and about the boss, but you, the Secretary of State is a former CIA director. And how much do you think that's kind of affected his, 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 his thirst for intelligence and kind of the way that he approaches INR? He is, I will tell you that uh, he is an avid consumer of intelligence. And, and, you know, I suspect he was that way when he went to CIA. I'm sure that CIA just, you know, further, uh, you know, you know, inflamed that lust for more and more intelligence and questions. And, um, you know, he is incredibly fast and he puts together concepts very, very quickly. Um, in fact, he and I have uh, a bet right now that, you know, I want to be able to get something to him from INR before he's had a chance to ask the question. And I think I've won, but I'm not going to ask him that. Um, but, but the point is, is that I, I, 
it is, and it's fun working for a boss who's like that. You know, there's, you know, again, there's times that we've worked for people over the course of my career where intelligence is but one source of information. For our leadership team, and you know, INR is very much valued and very much a part of what they do. And you know, I'm I'm happy to see how how our support actually impacts policy. So Ben, I saved this question for last before we kick it to the audience because it's just a juicy kind of waxing philosophic question. For, I'm a diplomatic historian, so I've been studying diplomacy and going all the way back to its early history. And for hundreds of years, there's been at least a basic understanding of what an act of war constituted. Like, you know, you invade somebody, you blow up something, you kill a leader, it's an act of war. Cyber's kind of flipped that on its head. I mean, you know, we're in a position where there have been actual kinetic attacks using cyber. There obviously have been meddling in elections using cyber. You know, we've done certainly things to other countries with, within covert action that could at one point be constituted as problematic, if not an act of war. How closely are we, meaning your department, INR writ large, working with our allies on the diplomatic intelligence side to somehow codify what an act of war in the cyber realm might look like? Where, where Are we drawing lines or are we just still trying to figure it out as we go along? Uh, your intellectual curiosity as a historian is uh, is it's well placed in this question. Uh, it's a great question, and uh, and I I need my you know my handlers would have me say first that I'm not a government lawyer, uh, so uh, I want to put that out there. Um, but I I would note and you and you cite some some you know great examples. I would note though that you know the the majority overwhelming majority of cyber incidents incidents and malicious activity that uh, that we work on, including state sponsored cyber activity. You know, it doesn't manifest in in, a, in physical violence or a physical outcome, uh, and, and in many ways, the, the the biggest challenge we we work on and work with all uh, every day is 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 that it's more analogous to other types of competition between states. You know, it's more it's much more the activity is more like espionage and information operations. Um, and there's a there's a case to be made really that states are deliberately staying away below the threshold. Of violence, precisely because they understand that 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 such a, an effect would provoke a very different kind of response uh, from a from a victim state. So, you know, in legal terms, we say that the range of activities uh, that we mostly see below fall below the threshold of use of force or, or armed attack, um, and that that states understand that a use of force uh, is still unlawful. International uh, law still applies, and that victim states have an inherent right to self-defense. Uh, and so again, the, the the challenge is that cyber presents not so much novel ways of, of acts of war, but that uh, states can cause a lot of economic damage. They can cause a tremendous amount of inconvenience uh, uh, in a state that that falls below what's tr traditionally understood as a, a use of force or an armed attack. So, and, and it, it it doesn't help that there's less consensus around uh, when international law might prohibit this kind of activity. Um, and so yes, we. You know the the diplomats that we support, you know, whether they be in, in L or our cyber policy colleagues, um, they are working really hard to help codify some of this. So, you know, the, those questions are being discussed at the UN's the the GGE, the Group of Government uh, Experts, at the OEWG, the Open Ended Working Group. Um, in these fora, the U.S. has publicly shared its views um, uh, as to when a cyber operation might constitute an, uh, a use of force or armed attack. Uh, and in the past year or two or so, I'd say, more and more states are sharing their views too. And as we get to greater transparency, uh, that's when we, we might get a little more predictability 
and stability in cyberspace. And that's what that's what our colleagues are working on. Yeah, because we've been we've been somewhat open, and certainly the, the you know our Western European friends have been open about, hey, look, if you if you shut down the East Coast of the United States, we might not take that as something we're just going to say, okay, nice job, you know. But there are certain states, potential adversaries, who haven't been as open. You know, are we in a position where we need that openness, you know, to to try to to mitigate kind of going back to kind of the nuclear age, right? You always wanted people to know where your red line was. Right. Don't step over the red line or the missiles start flying. Do, do we need a international understanding of where the cyber red line is? Uh, I, I, I can't say it wouldn't help. They're obviously, you know, as the strategic planners, we'll also we'll, they'd also talk about strategic ambiguity and uses there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they, there are these conversations. There is an effort to get greater transparency here. We are talking to governments that we are concerned about some of their their malicious activity uh and so uh i can't say i'm not privy to those discussions uh i'm not we're not there um but uh i can say that they're they're certainly important all right amanda let's bring you back on and let's see what the our audience has as far as questions are concerned i try to give us enough time because i'm thinking there's going to be some questions there, there definitely are. This is not the first one that I would have started with, but because you were in the international collaboration realm, this one makes really great sense. Wondering, how do we collaborate with our friends but not overshare? How do you juggle that fine line? How do we share? How do we collaborate? With, are you talking about an international? Yes. How do we... How do you share information but not overshare too much? How 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 do you handle that? Well, I'll tell you from an intelligence perspective, we are we are one of the 16 intelligence agencies. And so that's very much a part of our training, our tradecraft, how how we work. Um, we have I will tell you that we have very close partnerships. And I'm sure you've heard this from other speakers that date back. To the beginning of the intelligence community, um, and so, but we, but we very much understand, you know, what 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 can be shared and what can't be shared, and and our partners do as well. I mean, so with some relationships, they're much more transparent with others, um, not not quite as much. But we understand where those, you know, we we know what the requirements are. We know what is shareable and what is not shareable. We understand the clearance process. Um, but you know, let me tell you that uh, uh, we are we have great partnerships, great friendships, and derive great benefit and value. When I talked about how small we are, it's not just um, it's not just the U.S. intelligence community and the national security framework that we leverage, but it very much is our international partners and our international friends. And, and working for a, a, a department that's focused on diplomacy, we have a lot of those. So that's another area where we have we bring some unique perspective. Um, I'm going to roll two questions into one. Uh, one person wants to know, how would a university student who's interested in a career with INR or in the intelligence community, how would they get moving? And so tied to that, um, one of our former colleagues wants to know a little bit more about your individual career paths. Were you external hires? Did you come up through the ranks? If you're willing to share anything about your own personal journeys. I think we should start with the group. I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking at Adrian 
Um, Adrian, you started as a fellow, and that's that was how you got your entree. Um, I mean, every one of actually every one of the folks here have a very interesting story about how they got in. So I'm going to turn it over to my yeah, colleagues. Sometimes I worry it's tough to um, give advice because I think everyone has this maybe um, you know eccentricities in their pathway. So I'm a scientist by training. So I was in scientific research for a number of years. I did a PhD in epidemiology. I was actually working in the private sector, and I decided to pursue a AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellowship. So that's designed to bring PhDs, um, PhDs into federal government service. And you know, I didn't even know what INR was, so I, I don't, I don't really even know what to tell somebody to be honest, because you know, I just, I just had that interview um, and thought it was the coolest thing ever, and just kind of took a chance on it. And that was um, over six years ago, and I'm still here. So I, yeah, that, that's my story. <laughs> What about you, Ben? Uh, so for me, yeah, I think everyone has a, a circuitous route to, to our the seats in which we sit. Um, mine, mine is no different. Um, so I, w I was wrapping up my doctoral work on, um, on Chinese politics and international relations. Uh, wasn't sure where to apply that knowledge uh, and, and research, uh, but uh, I, I did know about INR. And uh, I was fortunate when uh, uh, I was uh, Accepted into the Presidential Management Fellowship Program, uh, that they, you know, a lot of its timing, a lot of its uh, persistence, but uh, a job opened up and I applied for it. Um, so I had done my, lots of my doctoral work on um, non-state actors in China um, and uh, international relations uh, uh, involved there. And so INR had questions about non-state actors in China, um, and so it, it was a lot of it was timing, and I knew I wanted to be there, and then. Uh, from there, questions about non-state cyber actors started to, to populate, and then uh, the story continued as I said yes to every opportunity that, that came my way, and, and now uh, here I am just looking more broadly at cyber uh, issues. Um, and then for me, I was also a PMF, so, you know, as long as I, I think people should be aware of programs like that, the Boren Fellowship, the Presidential Management Fellowship, those are great ways into government service in, in general. Um, I would say, so I started as a PMF and I started actually in, in my office as an analyst on, on Russia and Ukraine, um, worked my way up and lo and behold, now I'm the director. But I would say that for my, my big advice, and this might be a little self-serving, is quantitative social science plus area expertise. Those two things together so it can parlay into so many things. Either one, both together, like we do in my office. It's just, I mean, those are two skill sets that will serve people really well um, who are in un university. So that's what I would suggest. I came in on a different path. I started at a place called the Institute for Defense Analysis, which, which is a federally funded research and development corporation as an intern. And I was working on a, a paper that involved working with naval intelligence. And in the process of develop, working on that paper, I was actually picked up by the Office of Naval Intelligence. And so, you know, there's multiple routes, routes to get into the intelligence community. I think we've got three examples of where fellowships are great. Um, I, I will say that, um, you know, looking at internships, also looking at the private sector is an entree to government service. So, 
you know, the intelligence community uh, gets a lot of support from the private sector and companies that provide not only technical support, but analytic support. And so that's a great way to provide, to get access to the IC. Um, I'll tell you that most of the agencies have numerous job fairs. I would, I would go to an agency website and I would see what's going on. But I will tell you that what hasn't changed, and this is a bit frustrating for me, is that what's not changed since 1988, it's not only what you know, but it is your network. And so to the extent you take advantages of things like what you're doing right now and making those relationships, working your network, um, because that's really the best way to get in. It's if you have somebody who's inside who says, I know this person, you know, she is brilliant at this. Um, that is very helpful to, to eventually getting into the into the intelligence community um, or get or working on the private sector side. Um, we're working very hard at INR. We're one of the last agencies that um, that don't we don't hire directly right now. So what I would say is keep an eye on on, on the State Department on OPM and State Department. We actually are are hiring a number of positions. But we follow a traditional hiring route, um, but I would say definitely take advantage of your network and make some phone calls. Um, all right, so here is a, a really it's someone who has a great uh, you know, perspective on INR's analysis and said it has stood out from the rest of the intelligence community in accurate analysis regarding events such as the Vietnam War, the Yom Kippur War, and Iraq's weapons of mass disrupt destruction. We had an exhibit called mass weapons of mass disruption. It always messes me up. Sorry. Weapons of mass destruction. So what makes INR stand out in this regard and and have such solid analysis? So I get it goes to our history, Vince, you're a historian. Um, you know, when I when I talked about OSS and you know, uh, Wild Bill Donovan, he recruited folks that were really smart who could win at bar fights. I mean, that was his, that's, that was his measure. And, and so, you know, a little, a little scrappy, incredibly smart. Um, and, and so being deep in an area and having those relationships with your client um, enables you to, to gain insights that you might not get if you're only working in an area for two to three years. So by comparison, some of the other all source agencies, they provide great intelligence support, but they've got a different operating model. So, so you'll have people who are highly specialized because they're so big, they'll be highly specialized in a very small area, or they may rotate, they may be more generalists and they'll rotate to other sides. So we, we on the other hand, have deep expertise on things that are relevant to, to the policymaker. And so, so we get a little bit different perspective on that. And so when we're working joint intelligence products, you know, we come in with a different view. And, and I'll tell you that I think that's a view, and it's part of our culture. You know, I, I talked about where we were 75 years ago. We, we take great pride. Gina mentioned that I'm gonna disagree with you on something. That's part of, of who we are. And I think as a result, we provide great value to the intelligence community and the national security sector as a result. You know, you, you hear about the things that you hear about. You talk about INR going a little bit under the radar. We're very comfortable in that place. Every day we provide dissents to pieces or we, or, we can, or we support a certain piece. And it doesn't get heard about and that's what we like. So we don't, you know, while we, when I want to tell our story, I really don't want to be too specific um, because we want, to we want to continue to provide the best support that we can to our policy colleagues. Can I, can I jump in and ask the question? A, a lot of these large bureaucracies, um, I won't name names, but you know, large agencies that are much much more populous than INR. There is a somewhat 
fear of going against the grain and, and perhaps not getting promoted because of it or, or, you know, not taking chances because if you're wrong, that could end a career. Do you kind of create an environment or is it traditional with an INR to have that environment of risk reward? The idea is, look, if you're wrong, people are wrong. That's, it's not going to end your career. Like, can, can you go and be different because you have the ability to screw up or you're not so afraid of messing up that you're willing to go out on a limb? Well, again, I think that, that gets to the small, you know, so, you know, that for, for folks who come to INR, they tend to stick around. For them, self-actualization is being a part of the policy process. And with that comes great reward. You know, it's funny, all the data shows that, you know, promotions are great. Don't get me wrong. We have to support our families. We, you know, we, ha we have to have a life. But at the end of the day, um, you know, most of the folks in government and at INR, you know, they, they derive incredible benefit from having that relationship and from having that impact. And I think that's one thing that does set INR apart from the other agencies. I'll tell you, you know, that's what's one thing I'm also worried about, though, is we're, we're new generation, new challenges. The world is changing. It's far more complex. So I'm very much focused on what are the things um, can I and the leadership team do to encourage our people to stay? You know, I, I want them to be able to get opportunities to, to work in other agencies, to work at embassies, and, and then to come back with that knowledge and, and, and to provide them um, opportunities for promotion and op opportunities to get other experiences. You know, I'm very focused on what can we do to keep our workforce. Um, that's, that's, that may be different than some of, the other, some of the other agencies, but that really is what our value, it, that where our value derives from. And can I just can I just jump in here? I want to say that El, I mean Ellen's been bragging about us the whole time, but I think some of these questions you're asking also point to the strength and leadership we have. We've got Ellen, but also lots of the other deputy assistant secretaries, and you know my boss and office director. And there really is a culture of of, of trust in the experts, trust in expertise. And so for us as analysts, we have the backing of our leadership when we want to make a call and you call it you might want to you might call it high risk but i would say it's actually not very high risk because they are they are picking i mean they are hiring the experts and, and they trust us and yes of course sometimes we get it wrong and that's okay right we make probabilistic assessments anyway so we always leave a little room to get it wrong but i would just say that leadership culture of trust in the analysts and um you know really being behind us all the time contributes to that it's also a motivator for excellence i mean i can say for me personally i mean you come in and you're writing for the president's daily brief um you know from i mean not the day you arrive but you know pretty early on and you're given a lot of responsibility because we are small and, and to me that just makes us all want to do better um, I think you guys will enjoy clarifying this question since we don't have much time left, but um, people want to know if you're asked to generally find information on a subject or to find information from a specific political point of view. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.